Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's deep fake episode of DPS, wherein uh, somebody perused the last four years of DPS episodes, faked my voice, and uh, now uh, going to uh, ruin uh, the reputations of all of our hosts. Uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. What do you guys think about this deep fake stuff, by the way? Totally off the cuff. You guys know what this deep fake stuff is? I mean, I know what a deep fake means, but it sounds like something's been going on lately. I haven't been hearing about. Brianna, have you heard? Do you know what deep fake technology is? Have you visited this horror show that is our apocalyptic future of, of deep fake media? I'm here to learn. You're here to learn. All right. So if you guys want to like not sleep for several days, Google deep fakes. It is horrifying what they can do now faking people's voices faking people's like uh, image images video all the rest of it like the bottom line is like we're headed for a future you guys this is a dark way to open the show we're headed for a future where our eyes and our ears will betray us and you'll think you're listening to dps however it's been created by um, one of our arch enemies to, to ruin us all it's gonna be uh it's going to be fun uh, to, to be uh, living on this planet in, in 10 or 20 years, you guys. Um, we got a great show. By the end of it, you guys can determine for yourself whether it's been a deep fake or not. Joining us later on in the program is Christian Parenti. He has been on the show a couple of times over the past few years. And uh, we're going to be talking about his latest book, Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder. And relax, everybody. We're not going to be singing ridiculous earworm show tunes from the latest Broadway hit. We're going to contextualize that and talk about how the American school founded by Alexander Hamilton went on to inspire the likes of Friedrich List and, you know, I don't know, a guy named Karl Marx that some of you may have heard of. Um, and, and also, too, it gives a lot of lessons about our future with the Green New Deal and socialist strategy. But first, here's something that's not a deep fake. Um, Adele, you guys, Adele is canceled. Did you hear? I did not hear what happened. Adele has been canceled, you guys. We're not allowed to... Uh, Hello from the other side uh, on Thanksgiving Day any longer. So there is a Jamaican festival called Notting Hill Carnival. Adele went out into public, socially distanced, as a responsible Brit, uh, dressed in a bikini. She's also lost a lot of weight lately. So that's by proxy fat shaming, if you think about it. Sure, um, sure, sure. Yeah, the fact that she's lost some weight. And she's wearing a Jamaican flag bikini, and her hair is in Bantu knots which is apparently the uh, style of, of, of Jamaica. So, of course, Twitter got a hold of this photo. She's canceled, you guys. No more Adele. RIP to a real one. When is, <sighs> when is Nancy Pelosi going to get canceled for the Kente cloth? Like, I just, why, I just don't understand how that didn't happen. When is Nancy Pelosi going to get canceled for endorsing Joe Kennedy III, who just got trounced by Ed Markey? Yeah, yeah. Maybe the uh, people of Massachusetts, like, uh, what did she, what did she, memorably called about a year ago, the green dream or whatever. Yeah. Or whatever. Maybe they're actually into that. It's my understanding. In addition to Adele, uh, Adele's in good company. Uh, you know, well, who else was canceled? Ben Burgess. You, you yourself have been canceled this past week. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. No, not, not for, uh, not for the first time, but, uh, but with, with great fat, with great passion and enthusiasm. So I, I, you know, wrote this book and in the slightly annoying way that writers do, you know, when, when they, they have a book, I, I, I tweeted about it when uh, the proposal was first approved. 
And I tweeted about it when I finished writing it. And I tweeted about it at five or six other points, talked about it on some podcasts, obviously, including, you know, including here, you know, at home on DPS. But, <laughs> um, but uh, I'm guessing from the reaction of left Twitter to the most recent time I tweeted about it, which was when uh, the publisher sent me the cover. And so I posted it on Twitter. This was quite a few people's first inkling that this book existed. Yeah. So uh, what's the title of the book? Share that with people who haven't heard. Yeah. The, uh, the title yeah. of the book is Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a Critique of the Contemporary Left. So it's obviously anti-left, right? You're critiquing the left, therefore you hate the left. Is that right? That's my. That's I don't know. I that's my. No, that's 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 right. Like to yeah. um, to steal an analogy uh, from the late Michael Brooks uh, that he used on his Jacobin show. If a basketball coach makes his team run drills, that must that could only be because he hates the team. He hates the team. Wants to lose. That's the only exactly not because he wants them to do better and win games. <laughs> that, that could not possibly be the motivation for a critique of anything that you you want to make that thing better yeah, and so. more effective, right? Because you you actually really care about the outcome a lot. But ironically, the um, the thesis of the book is that there has been a general trend on the contemporary left going back a long time that, you know, you could root in things like the end of the Cold War, the decline of the labor movement, to see politics in terms of the performance of individual moral commitment instead of as an attempt to band people together on the basis of, uh, of shared interest and, you know, shared goals to, to materially change the world. And that even though actually, you know, we're starting to have some some opportunities to, you know, gain real world power again, I mean, without going nuts and, and exaggerating the point, right? Things are not as bleak as they were not very long ago, but I claim in the book that we have a lot of leftover bad habits from this and that uh, a lot of us tend to reflexively frame politics in every context in terms of morality, in terms of what Adolf Reed, who we just interviewed, right? You know, I remember him calling once, right, treating politics as if it were a matter of deciding who was going to go to heaven and who was going to go to hell. Well, yeah, both um, you and Bell are going straight to hell. Honestly, if that's the case, uh, send me there too, because she sings like a fucking, like a like the most beautiful <laughs> songbird you've ever heard. I mean, I just, I want her to sing. Can she sing me to sleep every night in hell? Do do people sleep in hell? Yeah, they do. They do, but they they wake up constantly. It's very unsatisfying. It's not uh, like, uh, most every night for me these days. <laughs> uh, send me there; it won't be any different. So I was I was gonna say right, like given that the thesis of the book is that there's this culture of moralistic outrage that's undermining the left. Like, really, I couldn't have asked for for better advertising than what's happened in the last week. I've um like Brianna, she has uh, successfully pulled me off of Twitter for the most part. And, you know, unfortunately, because of the nature of your job, it's a uh, it, it's a it's an occupational hazard to be on Twitter as a journalist such as yourself, Ben. And so uh, yeah. thank you for doing a service. Uh, everybody <laughs> out there, pour one out for Ben. Um, not only uh, does he have to live in hell for the next, uh, you know, however many thousands of days he's got on this planet, but he has to he has to end up there in the afterlife as well. But uh, at least to be joined by good company. But speaking of hell worlds, um, yeah. Trump yeah. has a new covid advisor. That everybody needs to know about and hear about. He uh, infamously has not been led by the most capable humans uh, out there for sure. But he he's got a real a real ace in the hole with his new COVID health advisor, a guy by the name of Doctor Scott Atlas. He comes uh, from us uh, from a, a gang of 
a gang of good lads, uh, friends of the show, I believe, at the, the Hoover uh, Institute, arch uh, conservative free marketeers that they are over there at Stanford. And um, he is gaining uh, increasing influence at the White House. So I've been told really uh, overshadowing not only Fauci, which is predictable, but also Dr. Burks, who has much more kind of conservative street cred. Uh, but Scott Atlas uh, is once again pushing for a version of herd immunity, a kind of uh, rampant, bloodthirsty, free marketeerism of healthcare provision that uh, will undoubtedly tank any opportunity for the Trump administration to turn this COVID thing around, which might hand them an election victory in November. And yeah, I don't want to be an accelerationist about this. But this is nothing to celebrate because it's fucking terrifying. It's horrifying that Atlas, Dr. Atlas, who is not an infectious disease expert, he is a diagnostic radiologist. The only reason he ended up on Trump's radar screen is because he had a, a series of segments on Fox News. So as we know, Trump watches Fox News at the end of the day, and uh, he phones up the, the guys that uh, are singing his tune and, and asks them to join his staff. And Dr. Atlas is the latest real brain genius to do so. What do you guys think about this development and Trump's overall approach to COVID? Is this going to give Biden like a fighting chance in hell in November? Should we, in a sense, celebrate the fact that Trump can't stop tripping over his own dick, so to speak, when it comes to this COVID thing? And I think I read this morning that Atlas said that he was skeptical of masks, mm. which I mean, I, this is totally circumstantial evidence. But then The Economist published an article this afternoon that said that a single American wearing a mask for a day helps avoid a drop in GDP of $56.14. And so I feel like they're speaking in the language, you know, the love language of, <laughs> of America's ruling class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's there's some guys over at the Hanson Hoover Institution who are who are uh, let's say moist uh, after hearing something like that. You know what I'm saying? They're ready to go. They're uh, yeah, yeah, ready yeah, to head to the bedroom well. after uh, hearing hearing uh, some facts like that. Well, yeah. Although speaking of the bedroom, you see the um, Surgeon General of Canada uh, is recommending that people wear masks while having sex. I did not. I did not. So. Uh, R.I.P. R.I.P. Romance in the sack, I suppose. I don't know. Some people would be into that. Just like, <laughs> for like a different reason. How dead sure. inside. No, I, no, I'm sure there are people who are feeling like pretty happy right now because they were so far ahead of the curve on this public health advice. But uh, I'm not sure how many people outside of that category are going to take it. And, and, and there is like, obviously, whatever. That's just kind of like funny and bizarre. But like. I think there is there's a serious thing here, which kind of brings us back to the reason that I'm going to be in hell with Adele and Adolf Reed, which is, you know, a sentence that I enjoyed saying. So I'm probably going to work that in a couple more times in this conversation. <laughs> but, uh, How many puppies do I have to strangle in order to join you? Because it sounds like a hell of a party, I'm just saying. That's right. <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, seriously, can you fucking imagine, right? Like, they're like, 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 like. Adolf would be like cracking really dry jokes and, you know, like, like Adele would probably sing at some point. It'd be amazing. Um, Laugh, we'd cry. But there is, there is a, there's a disturbing thing here that I I think is worth talking about more generally, right? Which is that we talk a lot on here about orienting politics towards, you know, state and economic institutions and, and, you know, and, class solidarity and away from from individual moralism and and I'll I'll grant you that the covid crisis like does complicate that a little bit right you know because because there is 
it's not like there's no role at all for like not necessarily in that context, but in other contexts, you know, telling somebody to put a fucking mask on, right? Yeah, like, like right. there, there is definitely a place for that. Um, but it's also true that this intersects with this thing in American progressivism that was there anyway. So it's like a, a marriage made, you know, like wherever, you know, wherever you think this was made. Uh, between couldn't be hell. Uh, that was a pretty cool place right now. So. That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, between uh, uh, like this sort of COVID shaming and like what was kind of already there in American liberalism, and you know, also see every single previous episode of Dead Pundit Society. The line between liberalism and leftism is not always sharp in practice, and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Um, because being told that, oh, the, the real thing, right, we're not going to actually do anything on a meaningful level, right? You know, like, like, like we're not even really, for the most part, going to have shelter-in-place orders anymore, right? Like, that stuff's mostly gone now, uh, much less like any of the big, you know, like, large-scale things that, that we've talked about since the, since the pandemic started. Uh, none of that's going to happen. But you're going to be strongly encouraged to yell at each other. Oh, like, and, and, and you know who else we're yelling at? Speaking of cancellations, you're going to have another uh, fun party guest in hell. Ben, you guys ready for this? Mm. Bella Thorne, actress Bella Thorne. Canceled. Yeah, she's, she's done. She's so, she's so done. So actually, let's, let's be real. Like, but her actions were, were kind of shitty. However, it's a perfect Ugh. illustration of what you're talking about. This kind of imbrication of this kind of intense hyper-moralism and this kind of um, this this culture war, the way that you know real tangible power disputes are are um, completely transformed into this this culture war, which leaves institutions and, and power relations largely untouched. Bella Thorne joined OnlyFans. OnlyFans is a subscription service wherein sex workers and other people have quote fans who follow them and have to pay monthly or per content alleged apparently i learned this i thought it was a monthly subscription service like patreon not unlike the patreons of, of every socialist podcast out there right vital service sex workers end up on OnlyFans for the most part i think patreon's fairly anti-sex workers so by the way patreon therefore is also canceled we'll have to find a new place to host our our fun service <laughs> bella thorne went on OnlyFans and promised everybody uh, a nude a nude photo and she apparently chose to charge her followers $200 to open this email, right? So you can charge per email, apparently. Her uh, thirsty followers opened the email and it wasn't a nude, as promised, but they were charged $200 nonetheless. She netted like a million dollars from this little scam. They, these, uh, obviously her followers complained. OnlyFans had to refund the money, of course. Then they were out a couple million dollars. And because of that, they therefore changed their policies on their payment schedules. Creators, sex workers would no longer be paid on a weekly basis. They would have to wait until their payments cleared the bank or something, and they'd be paid on a monthly basis. So people who had previously uh, relied on paychecks once, twice, three, four times a month had to wait 30 days to be able to pay their bills and feed their kids. Instead of the obvious result, which would be blaming OnlyFans, the multi-billion dollar entity that... uh, shaves you know, money off the top of the efforts of sex workers and other people trying to feed their kids and pay their bills in this fucking horrific every man, woman, and child for him or herself pandemic. 
Uh, instead of that, we have all unleashed our collective scorn on Miss Bella. Bella Thorne is now the um, enemy of the people. Isn't it astonishing how Americans always fail to like recognize the bad guy in any given situation? Yeah, no question. And 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 I and I guess I, I should just say right that like uh, this is actually a really good lead into what I was going to talk about because the Bella Thorne thing, I think. In some ways, I mean, everything you're saying about it is 100% true, but in, uh, in some ways, I think it fits in with a lot of sort of strategies that people use for deflecting about this stuff and, and being in denial about it. They say, oh, this is just like wealthy and powerful celebrities complaining, right? And, and with, without exaggerating Bill Thorne's power, you know, like, like, like you can see that, you know, that somebody could very easily like wedge it into that, right? That like... Oh yeah, right. Whatever. These are people with like very few real problems. They just don't like the fact that everybody else can, you know, talk back now or whatever. But of course, this isn't something that only affects people like that. To put it mildly, I actually just finished writing for Jacobin a review essay, like a five years later, kind of looking back on essay about um, John Ronson's uh, book uh, "So You've Been Publicly Shamed," which is full of examples uh, involving ordinary people who are famous only because this happened to them. Uh, and, and, and I saw, you know, before we, we start talking to Christian, right, you know, I did just want to say, um, you know, I, I saw this, this New York Times story today uh, that's just perfect for this. Uh, and, and I think it kind of says everything about, like, how the intersection of this kind of, like, cancel culture and infused version of progressivism and the COVID pride crisis like severely undermines any effort to do anything meaningful and institutional in the real world. So I, so here's how the article opens up. I'm just going to read the you know, first two paragraphs here. It looked to be a typical college party. A small group of students crammed into a kitchenette. Sheeran is a shirtless guy armed wrestled, arm wrestled a laughing young woman. No one wore masks. The scene was posted on Snapchat by one of the partygoers, a first-year Cornell student, along with a selfie with a mocking caption. The people who, uh, who slide up saying, you're not social distancing are the ones who never would have been invited anyway. The response was swift and severe. Within days, an online petition was created demanding that the student's admission to Cornell be revoked. And in the weeks since, the petition has collected more than 3,500 signatures. So literally thousands of, of strangers are taking whatever minute you know, they have of the day to, you know, to devote to this stuff. Uh, to organize to expel some random eighteen-year-old from college, um, and at a structurally course, structurally very similar similar to canceling a twenty-two-year-old Bella Thorne for her crimes against uh, sex workers allegedly, rather than you know attacking OnlyFans, rather yeah, than exactly. attacking the administrators, rather than t- attacking the crony politicians who have absolutely no strategy uh, from the top down, you know, to, to fight and, and protect workers and vulnerable populations. Um, you know, it's, it's Americans just don't know who to blame when things go wrong. And, yeah. and, and honestly, you know, again, this is why you uh, criticize. This is why we criticize the left, not because we hate it, but because we want it to succeed. And the left has not led the way in demonstrating who, to, who to hold accountable when, how, why. Yeah. And the habit of, moral outrage channeled towards individuals uh, completely lets the relevant institutional actors off the hook, you know, the Cornell administration or only fans. Um, in fact, it, it gives cover to them, right? Because 
Cornell can say, hey, uh, you know, we, we uh, set up this thing to encourage students to inform on each other. Uh, so we're, we're trying to do something about this, right? You know, like it's, it's, it's out of our hands. Uh, or wow, especially if they do expel this kid, right? You know, they could say, hey, look how seriously we took it, right? You know, we, we kicked this 18-year-old out of college. So clearly we're taking the safety thing very seriously while continuing to um, reap the financial benefits of, of continuing to have college open uh, in the middle of a plague when everybody in the world knows that there's no, it's completely unrealistic to think that you could try to hold college in person under this circumstances and not have that scene that's described at the middle of the article play out 20 times a day. Cause of course it will, right? Like they, the question should be, what policies should you have to try to minimize that? Because even if you do kick out one dumb kid and in the process harden culture war battle lines that actually makes it harder uh, to, to organize people to, you know, like, you know, I want to know how many people in that time even signed a petition calling for Cornell to go online, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, like, it, but it makes it harder to sell even like, cause there's this, there's this response that people always give at this point. It's like, Oh, what you're saying? I can't walk and shoot bubble gum, right? I can do both. Right. You know, I, I, I can, I can participate in hysterical online mobbings of random individuals and also push for, you know, institutional change uh, to which I'd say, no, you, you can't right. Uh, or, or you can, but doing one is going to undermine your effort to do the other uh, because and, and one the proof is in the pudding. You know, one is happening. The other is not. And so (laughs) what other evidence do you need that that uh, the one uh, sucks up all the oxygen in the room? Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's it's it sucks up all the oxygen. It it, it provides cover to the people who should be targeted by the institutional efforts. Uh, And it makes it harder to get people on board with the other more important thing, because everybody picks teams on the basis of like some stupid shit, like how they feel about kicking this idiot out and depriving him of the college education he so desperately needs. I'll tell you what, though, this guy's got a real career in politics if he plays his cards right. This eighteen-year-old kid who's about to get kicked out of Cornell. You know, he, he's he's on the verge of an invitation to the uh, twenty twenty Republican National <laughs> Convention. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. That like yeah. Nicholas Sandman, like who, all right, other than being a Trump supporter, like 42% of the public, last I checked. Um, he doesn't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex. <laughs> yes, that's also true, right? That this, that like when this happened, right? It's just like literally, even legally at that point, right? Literally, uh, you know, a child, right? Or at least he was a minor. Uh, and also like his only real crime in that situation, if you go back and look at that, was that he's got a pretty severe case of resting douche face. Yeah, he has a highly punchable face. There's a German word for that. I can't ever remember when I need to pull it out, but he does. He's, the man's got a highly punchable face. Yeah, he's got a highly punchable face, but literally all he was doing was like standing there, not being sure what to do. Oh, uh, a dumb kid. Yeah, being a dumb kid. And But because we live in this hellish time period, <laughs> the consequence of being a dumb kid in a photogenic way at the wrong place at the wrong time uh, is that you end up, you know, and also the fact that due to, um, you know, the current state of capitalism in the United States in 2000 and I guess 19, 18, whenever this was at that time, right? 
people like newsrooms can't really afford the same level of editorial oversight that they once had. Uh, People are just kind of lazily Googling things and, you know, committing them to print. So the media fucked up the story. Uh, The right had a cause celeb. And now this completely talentless child gets to have a career doing this. And, you know, we all have to hear his dumb opinions. That's right. I mean, he becomes a proxy for all the legitimate anger that should be channeled towards institutions and, and those who are in power. Well, all right, enough of this. Uh, so Ed, there you go. You, you have it. You, you've heard it here. Adele, Ben Burgess, Bella Thorne, this 18-year-old kid from Cornell, RIP. We'll see you all in hell. I think it's going to be a fun party. I bet that 18-year-old can do a hell of a keg stand. Uh, he's had a lot of practice. So Ben, you should probably uh, up your game uh, along <laughs> the way. So enough of that. You guys, we are now joined by Christian Parenti. He has joined the party, so to speak. Christian. Uh, Hello. Well, welcome back to DPS, my friend. You haven't been canceled lately by any chance, have you? Well, you know, I'm not on social media, so I don't know. You know uh, what? That's right. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm of the age where, you know, it was an option and I just opted out. So <laughs> the way it goes, I, I, I appreciate it. You know, I, I mean, honestly, every time I look at social media, um, I'm... I'm distressed and I'm embarrassed sometimes even for my close friends who are on social media. And uh, I increasingly feel that it is introduced a form of rot into argumentation and to people's style of thinking, mm-hmm. uh, the superficiality, the kind of retort that is without any basis. In fact, the kind of uh, total it's sort of intellectual dishonesty that accompanies a lot of these discussions. Just, I find it deeply deeply depressing and every time i'm like yeah i really shouldn't be such a jerk i should just get on there and do and i'm like nah i i don't want to do it but you know then i but then i like then i lean on people like hey man could you tweet this out for me yeah right it's when when you have something to promote right you gotta get it out there so it's 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 like i see the utility of it even even as i'm like recoil and heart yeah yeah it's, it's like for um like for the five years or something before I finally got a smartphone. Like I feel like I was, I constantly had to ask friends to do things with theirs. I had the same thing. I thought it was really cool for a long time. Like into the two thousands, I would get calls at my favorite bar restaurant. I'd be like, like, yeah, I'll be at the diner, you know, give them a call. And people would like turn down the music, like, yeah, it's Christian here. But like, I gotta get a phone call. <laughs> and then finally this journalist friend of mine was like, just left me a message on my voice note home. He's like, I think it was 2004. I don't know. Maybe it was even later. He was like, so hey, 2005, time to get a cell phone. <laughs> so I finally did. Now I have a smartphone, but I don't have more than that. Yeah, yeah. They, here you go, uh, Christian Parenti, uh, the Luddite on DPS today. Someone has to. Yeah. So, yeah. so to Christian, speaking of uh, of argumentation, I haven't watched it yet, but my understanding is just before we're recording this, you debated our comrade Lee Phillips uh, about uh, nuclear energy on uh, Jackson. How'd that go? It went well, but yeah, I mean, I, I, you know. Lee, Lee, I, I think embodies this. It's this sort of this kind of PR logic, this this spin. I mean, my argument about atomic power is that it's just too expensive, which it is, and that's why for 20 years now we've been hearing about this nuclear renaissance, and it just hasn't materialized because it doesn't make economic sense to do it. There are nuke plants being here, being built here, being built there. Uh, you know, we've got one nuke plant under construction in the U.S. That's going to come in at like $29 billion. It was estimated being $14 billion to start with. And so this is, you know, uh, really, really expensive. Uh, twice twice yeah, as expensive. expensive as the most totally overblown, expensive 
concentrated solar with molten salt uh, yeah. kind of storage. Yeah, my understanding is like I said, you know, I'm I'm one over to the more scientific arguments about about that stuff. But no, you're you're not lying about that. I mean, it, it's mind blowing how expensive nuclear energy is right now. Yeah. Uh, but but we'll, we'll let we'll we'll let people listen to that on the Jacobin channel. So Christian Prenti um, is an associate professor of economics at John Jay College at City University of New York. And uh, your teaching and research focuses on globalization, American economic and environmental history, and political violence. And we're really delighted to have Christian here to talk about his most recent book published by Verso called Radical Hamilton, Economic Lessons from a Misunderstood Founder. So thank you, Christian, for coming on DPS. Thank you very much for having me on. I Before we get into the actual substance of the book, I had a question purely from uh, the perspective of a clinical psychologist, which is that your epigraph is uh, from civilization and its yeah. discontents. And I just was really curious about uh, what made you decide to include those quotes? They were longer to begin with, but the book was longer, but they had to be cut down. But I mean, I think it because the it gets at a kind of an eternal struggle. I mean, the, the epigraphs are, uh, you know, about like this very pessimistic view of humans, right? Maybe I should read it, right? Yeah, let's the, read it. The bit of truth behind all this one so eagerly denies is that men are not gentle, friendly creatures wishing for love who simply defend themselves if they are attacked, but that a powerful measure of desire for aggression has to be reckoned as part of their instinctual endowment. The result is that their neighbor is to them not only a possible helper or sexual object, but also a temptation to them to gratify their aggression on him, to exploit his capacities for work without recompense, to use him sexually without his consent, to seize his possessions, to humiliate him, to cause him pain, to torture and kill him. And then what was left out of the book is homo homini lupus, man is wolf to man. Who in the face of all history can deny this in the face of, and it goes on describing the, you know, all these things. But we cut that part out for the sake of space. So that's then followed up by the next quote from the same book. And now I think the meaning of the evolution of civilization is no longer obscure to us. It must present the struggle between eros and death, between the instinct of life and the instinct of destruction, as it works itself out in the human species. This struggle is what all life essentially consists of, and the evolution of civilization may therefore simply may, may, may therefore be simply described as the struggle for life of the human species. So I use that because I think it kind of gets at, you know, some deep truths about what we are. I mean, we're our own worst enemy in a way. But, um, you know, I like our species. I'm a little, you know, obviously biased because I'm a human being. And I don't, I don't like elements in the environmental left that castigate people for being people. Yeah. And I don't like elements in the left that are in denial about the real ugly side of human beings. And I'm, you know, I'm a Marxist. And, uh, you know, my day job is blaming everything on capitalism. It's a joke. We would never do anything so simplistic as that. But there's also, there's also something else, right? The human condition is chronic. And uh, I don't think there is a final arrival and everything gets sorted out. I mean, th- this is the struggle, right? It's a struggle with ourselves as a species. And in a very kind of meta way, that's what 
the, the question of environmental transition is about. And that's what the story of the, you know, the developmentalist state fits into that. It's like, yeah. how, you know, how do you, how do you bring order, not some repressive order that's about Thanatos, but how, I mean, how do you bring order to the potential chaos and self-destruction that is, that is an endemic part yeah. of the, the, the human species? Yeah, and if I may jump, I mean, you know, Freud obviously wrote, well, not obviously, it may not be obvious to many people, Freud wrote this book, uh, he'd lost his son, he had witnessed the utter devastation of Europe in World War One, the rise of Nazism, and the kind of, uh, the, just the horrors that would uh, befall that, uh, that uh, his pride, pride civilization over the coming decades, and uh, he had a very bleak understanding, but it, it stands as a antidote to the evolutionary socialism that, that prevailed a couple of decades before um, and the Second International, didn't it? This kind of uh, long march triumph kind of, uh, and, you know, and I can't help but to compare that to where we are now in our contemporary moment, the Bernie mo- moment. I think that a lot of us, and rightfully so, for all the right reasons, got swept up in this kind of developmentalism in terms of like, this is the antidote. Uh, it's, you know, we're on the rise. And, and, and very swiftly, in a matter of months, that you know, many of our hopes, our wildest dreams, our, our our sort of hail mary miracles that we had hoped for that this that this uh, you know Jewish so democratic socialist from Brooklyn would would deliver us from evil were, were dashed on the rocks of uh, circumstance and history uh, with the pandemic and all the rest of it. You know, this is a, a really important message to to revisit, and 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 your book is well timed in that way. Nobody wants to release a book during a pandemic. But this is perhaps the book that we need during a pandemic um, in terms of revisiting this kind of developmentalist approach in terms of getting us out of this clusterfuck that we found ourselves in. You teased this book. I got to remind you that you're a busy man. You teased this book on DPS in 2017. It's taken me a long time. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I had to to apply for and get like two different jobs in the interim and like, I don't know, you know, dealing with tenure. I mean, it's, you know, yeah. No, no, no disrespect. I mean, books and actually, you know, I must say, and in some ways, this book is every book is of its time. But I, I feel I feel very good about the the way that this book deals with the literature and um, that is to say, American history. So it's like there's no there are no corners cut in this book, and I may have made mistakes here or there, but it's like I was I was pretty rigorous with myself in terms of not wanting to just present some superficial argument, but I mean, to really want to, to wade into debates about the American revolution and the constitution and the history of American capitalism, you know, I mean, the history of American capitalism is a big thing these days. Right. So it took a long time, six, six years or whatever. So, yeah, no, no, no doubt. And, and, you know, uh, I was pumped because, you know, we don't, we don't talk enough about Friedrich List and all the rest of it. Uh, And so you went even further back. So this is good. This is going to be good stuff. Let's start in the thick of it. You set out to write a book about developmental uh, developmental economics, or the American school and all the rest of it. I'll, I'll ask this question and relinquish the mic to my two capable co-hosts. I have my suspicions, but I'd like to hear from you. Why did the book turn out to be about Alexander? What does he represent for you? Aside from the, you know, the uh, insanely popular play, uh, you know, play Hamilton, obviously, which has the, the, the captured the attention of the American public. Um, why did the book take this shape? And why did you feel like this was such an important intervention? Well, I mean, I kind of backed into it, or I very much backed into it. And what happened was I read about Hamilton and I noted, you know, just for fun, uh, I, I like American history. And 
I noticed this, you know, mention of the report on the subject of manufacturers and, uh, and then started digging around and kept noticing that it was mentioned and never really discussed. And it sounded at, at odds, like a document that was at odds with the rest of the way Hamilton was portrayed, which is as this, you know, um, servant of, of finance and a free marketeer. And so then I, you know, got the document and read it and realized, oh, this is actually, this document is very different from the way Hamilton is often portrayed. And it, it, it opens with an attack on Adam Smith. And so then I thought, oh, well, this is, you know, this would be, and actually I wrote an article for Jacobin about Hamilton and a guy from Australia wrote to me and he said, yeah, you know, in, and he sent me his book, which I, I cite in here, but I forget, I'm forgetting his name now, but it's, he, and he compares, uh, basically looks at the role of Hamilton on, on East Asian development. And so then I, I was thinking, all right, well, you know, we should really get this document published. And so I approached Verso and I very foolishly, I could have gotten away with this very quickly. I should, and I was like, Hey, how about we republish the report on manufacturers because it's in the public domain, because it's whatever it is, you know, 300 years old. And I will just slap this, this Jackman essay on the front as an introduction. And, and, and they were like, okay. And, and then I was like, well, I'll, but I, and I'll work on the essay a little bit. And then, you know, then I had basically something that was too long to be an introduction. And so then I, would, I said, okay, I'll write a short book and then we'll have the report of manufacturers will be the appendix. And then it became a long book. And then we actually even had to cut like a whole chapter out of it. Yeah, that's so that's so I, I really did kind of back into it by mistake, but um, it was, I mean, it, what it became was getting into, I mean, it's sort of like a certain type of mountain, I think, a certain type of American intellectual wants to climb at yeah. a certain age, which is like the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, you know, what, you know, what is this? Uh, this tradition about and how do you approach it from the left? And also something that became clear as I was digging into this was that oh, the left has sort of avoided a lot of this stuff. Mm-hmm. I, was, I ran this idea by Jim Oaks, you know, uh, teaches at, at CUNY at the graduate center yeah. uh, who did 18th century history, but now does, you know, civil war and reconstruction. And, and he said, yeah, he said, yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's like uh, uh, Charles Beard did, an economic interpretation of the constitution a hundred years ago. And, and the left, uh, the right has used him as a kind of whipping boy since then. And, and the left really doesn't try to deal with the constitution that much. Or if we do, it's, it's through a kind of the classic like liberal framing of sort of how government works. Right. So I, I try to deal with what government does. And I try to bring a materialist economically oriented approach to these documents and, and this history, the history of the American Revolution, which is in, 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 at one way, it's just like, so, I mean, could you pick a more like square and out of step subject to write about? But, you know, yeah, yeah. I spent I mean, a lot of years trying to like guess what editors were thinking as a journalist and like, you know, f- you spoon feed them what I thought they wanted. And so now I've gotten back into academia. I'm just like, yeah, I, w- I want to do stuff that might not appeal to a lot of people. It's fine with me. No doubt. I mean, one of the things, just one of the quick anecdotes that uh, I've learned from studying history long enough is that you say, you mentioned that, you know, Hamilton's report on subject manufacturers, it doesn't appear explicitly uh, in a lot of places. 
which would make one think that it's therefore not important. Except that if you studied history long enough, what you learn is that it's, it's precisely the opposite. People don't talk about it. They don't write about it because it's such, a, such an ever-present thing on the minds of the people in that moment. It's like writing about oxygen to breathe it. You don't have to do that. You just do it, right? You know, it's, 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 part of the, it's just part of the, uh, the, the, the zeitgeist. And so there's you know, no point. But it, in, it's, in it's like not just that it's part of the writing on it, uh, but, it, but it's nonetheless impacted people despite the fact that it doesn't like appear explicitly as a, as a, some, as a thought object. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. But it's not just because you're right that it is its impacts, i.e. The, 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 the effect of government planning essentially are ubiquitous. I mean, we would not have capitalism without, I mean, that, I mean, I came to that conclusion at the end of the book. I mean, it probably should have been obvious in the beginning, but I ended being like, okay, so wow. Like, so capitalism really is a project of states. Like that's what produces this. And I think going into this book, I still sort of thought, oh, that states have a fundamental relationship with capitalism, the private sector. But it's like, I, I exited this project really thinking, no, no, states, fiscal military states, matters of state, concerns of warfare, produce capitalism as a way of funding their state agendas. We can get into that later. But um, it's, you, its effects are ubiquitous, but it's also not dealt with because it really does violate the prevailing orthodoxy in economics. The document opens with an attack on Adam Smith. So that's why they don't read it, you know? And, and it proceeds to basically just violate everything you would learn in a standard economics program. Yeah, I love digging into the report and it really did feel like the book built up to it. So it's interesting that the writing process kind of mirrored that. Um, one of the things that I think, you know, just in line with the idea that the state is so constitutive of capitalism is, you know, you talk about Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution and and the different um, uh, ways in which the government was empowered to take certain actions and something as benign or seemingly benign as being able to regulate value. You talk about in Marxist terms, which is that like Hamilton had the idea that we needed to create a universal equivalent mm-hmm. and that we needed to, you know, somehow standardize thing, standardize mm-hmm. value across these disparate states that essentially acted as uh, semi-sovereign entities. I mean, sovereign entities. Mm-hmm. Well, they were, yeah, they were, I mean, they were, the states were sovereign in, in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about, about the, the, uh, you know, the clause on weights and measures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's not only standardizing value, but to standardize value, you first have to standardize standardization itself and quantification. And I mean, and Hamilton and the constitution don't succeed in that. Hamilton merely gets into the constitution that the, the federal government will set uh, you know, st- will standardize weights and measures. It will quote unquote fix the standard of weights and measures, which is like, what? Who cares? Like, what, what, what does that matter? It's like, oh yeah, well, you know, check it out. Like, value is dependent on uh, the quantification of qualities, right? I mean, you've got all these use values, these 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 things, these material things in specific places with specific qualities. I mean, how do you turn that into exchange value? Well, you do it through money, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, but like measuring what is measured by money also matters, especially if you're trying to create this national market out of 13 pieces. So 
And Mark's kind of uh, Mark's uh, slides past that a little bit, doesn't he? He talks about bales of cotton and this and that, and he sort of abstracts his way out of that conversation. Now, others have argued that you know he had intentions to go back and revisit the history of the creation of these types of things, but but Marx is too too often. Uh, we talked about this uh, last week with Adolf Reed about how Marxists all too often revert to these highly abstract uh, economic, uh, theoretical, uh, you know, kind of ways of handling the origins of capital and the functions of capitalism without getting to the nitty gritty history of how those measures came to be in in the first place. Um, and 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 again, you know, as uh, many many have, have come to this realization, uh, Polanyi among others, that like laissez faire was planned. Uh, states, markets, all the rest of it was absolutely and utterly planned. And there are documents and histories and figures that you can point to, uh, to, to prove it, uh, which, which gives us a, a different kind of look at, at, at what kind of world we can uh, achieve yeah. from here yeah. on out. But though in defense of the old guys, and I didn't put it in here, I don't think, but I do think that Engels has some quote somewhere like, cause you know, a lot of these, a lot of these kinds of things were like, they didn't do this. It's like, yeah, but they had these, these yeah. throwaway lines, which yeah, yeah, yeah. They know. you can't do it all, all the time. You know? the like, let's yeah. be fair. You can't do it all, all the time. You know, you have to, yeah. you have to have your emphasis for sure. Yeah. yeah. So they were, they were yeah. aware of the length yeah. of uh, future, like, future scholars will, uh, will debate like, you know, it's like, you know, Adam Proctor, you know, never, <laughs> never said, you know, he never did a single DPS episode on X and then, you know, then they'll be, no, 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 but, the, but, if, but no, 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 that's not quite true. Right. Cause there's something that we're pretty sure he's the one who tweeted it from the official Twitter account. And it yeah. said, yeah, please never let that time come to pass. Uh, anyway, uh, Brianna, what do you got? Let's, let's, let's peel back. We've talked about the importance of the developmental, uh, model in terms of, uh, capitalism literally being planned and crafted by men. Right. And, Fortunately, I use that term advisedly. They were men at the time. Though there were some pretty um, robust participation by women. Abigail Adams shows up in here. She was yes. a major speculator. That's she true. was like, I quote, uh, you know, uh, when John Adams was in Europe negotiating the, I, uh, he was either negotiating a loan, I forget what he was doing, but he's over in Europe. He's in the peace treaty. I think, whether, I forget it was the peace treaty or a loan. It doesn't matter, whatever. Um, and he was like, uh, you know, buy some more land. And she's like, mm, well, actually, her friend Tufts, who was her like kind of financial advisor from the university's name, she's like, you know, my friend Tufts has uh, knows of a better investment, and it is government debt. So she was a major player. She didn't design it, but she was she was there, kind of, you know, she was she was part and parcel of the class that, you know, uh, helped helped produce capitalism in that regard. So. That's Just right. giving the ladies their due, as she I, said to John Adams. Don't forget the ladies. Don't forget the ladies. My my margin notes uh, beside that that passage uh, is like if Abigail Adams were alive today, she'd be like heavy into Bitcoin or something. Right? She'd be all up on that. So, yeah, or just or just heavy into government debt, heavy into the real stuff. Never mind Bitcoin. Just like yeah, yo, it's the, I mean, it's the game hasn't changed that much. It's just like yeah, you know, the government has the guns. If you lend them money, they're you know, they're, until until the very last act, they're going to pay their bills. They're going to pay you back. You know, betting betting on the solvency of, of the American government, uh, pretty, pretty solid bet. Yeah. But before we start talking a little bit about, I mean, I do want to get to uh, you know the report and also um, Hamilton's influence on on the Constitution, but and the war, yes. a little bit, <laughs> yeah. 
should we should we back up a little bit and talk about his you know uh experience in the war and how that shaped his his vision because i think that that is part of setting up yeah i i I think that's important i mean so he you know he starts out as an artillery officer on the front lines but he's uh he's a prolific writer and he's really smart and a lot of different generals start noticing him and trying to recruit them to their staff. And then he, he waits until actually Washington recruits him. So then he joins Washington's staff. That means he's not out on the front lines being heroic anymore. He basically becomes a clerk for a bureaucrat. And he's at the apex of the whole thing. And it's at, it's as part of Washington's staff or his family, as Washington called it, that Hamilton gets a sense of just how tenuous the whole thing is. And um, a lot of what he does is write letters about supplies and, you know, getting, you know, getting people paid and getting people fed and getting people clothed. And so the, the war goes from being this question of character and bravery and morality. And he writes when he's young, he's always writing about, you know, the morality of this and that and whatever. And it, and it becomes structural. He's like plunging like, oh, wow, it doesn't really matter how brave your soldiers are and how moral the cause is. If they don't have shoes and food, they're useless. So you got to get them that stuff. And he, so he's plunged into that. He has a crisis, which strikes me as a nervous breakdown after about a year on Washington's staff. This is in the winter of 17, 1777 going into 1778. Um, the, the Continental Army has been defeated, uh, pushed out of New York into New Jersey, through New Jersey, into Pennsylvania. Congress is in Philadelphia. The British invade Philadelphia. They drive Congress out of Philadelphia. Washington blocks the British and protects Congress. And that's where they uh, encamp at Valley Forge for the winter. And in the run-up to that, there is finally a victory. And this is in uh, September, late September. Uh, a British force under General Burgoyne comes down from Canada and is invading and is cut off by General Horatio Gates, who defeats them at the Battle of Saratoga. And this is this amazing triumph for the Patriots. They capture all these weapons and all of these prisoners. It helps the... the, the um, it helps the, the sort of financial situation with, with European lenders. And at that point, General Gates and another general in the north, uh, Putnam, who's from New England, uh, start kind of just operating on their own, going rogue, and each planning possible invasions of New York. They don't want to share the weaponry. Gates doesn't want to share the weaponry. And uh, Washington sends Hamilton up the Hudson River to – meet these two generals and try and get them to come back into the fold. They also, Gates in particular, is beginning conversations, just now communicating with Congress on his own. And like, so going around the chain of command and Washington is so freaked out by this that he's not like, hey, General Gates, I order you to do X, Y, Z. He's like, whoa, this guy's basically got all these guns. He's winning battles. I'm not like, what's going on? He's, he's making a play for being like the top guy. So he sends and you could say one level, this is about Washington's tremendous ego, et cetera, et cetera. But another level, it's like Washington has this legitimate mission, which is protecting Congress. And so he sends Hamilton up to try and get some 
reinforcements and weapons brought down to Valley Forge. And Hamilton convinces Gates and Putnam to essentially come to heel after several days of negotiations back and forth. And then upon his return to Valley Forge, has basically a nervous breakdown, a nervous fever in which he is delusional and ranting and thinks he's going to die. And he basically has to convalesce for two months. After that episode, which is noted in all, everything that's written about Hamilton, but it's treated as just, as just you know, a sickness, like that he got like, you know, you know, typhoid, whatever, which maybe he did, who knows. But I mean, but also the, the, the descriptions of him at that moment by those who were attendant to him describe his psychological state as essentially unhinged, that he's hallucinating and ranting and not making any sense and kind of like paranoid and, and losing it. And too much that, lead in the, in the bread and the, the rations or something <laughs> like that, right? I mean, back in those days, all bets were off. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think he just snapped because he's like a 23-year-old kid with this huge uh, burden. And he sees, you know, he sees this is not just about like, you know, you know, being the star of the play and being like, charge and all this kind of stuff. He's like, whoa, like we don't get these people paid. We get like the whole thing goes down the drain. After this event, he comes back to Valley Forge and he's like on top of his duties, he starts writing these long letters to various leaders that lay out his future vision for the U.S., which is like the Constitution, a central bank, this whole kind of like the, the, a sketch of the fiscal military state. And it's like the first iteration of that is post-fever, post-breakdown Hamilton in that spring of, of 78. And his voice really changes. So it's something of an epistemological break, um, Marxist in the audience. Now you've done, done it, Christian. Now you've done it. Now the comments are going to be on fire with that uh, characteristic lack of uh, thinking and empathy that happens online. <laughs> So, so this was a big, a big moment in, in his trajectory of becoming the guy that, that we know him uh, uh, to be, thrown, yeah. so uh, then, cast then, into the, the fates of, of history and, and the historical burdens of, of managing uh, like the concrete affairs of an army and uh, an aspiring nation. Yeah. And we often think of the, the Revolutionary War as kind of like a guerrilla struggle because that was sort of part of the strategy, but it was really capital intensive. Uh, you know, there was, it was, it was 18th century force on force kind of military um, engagements. And that meant it was a huge economic undertaking. So I discussed all that and I use as an example, just a kind of surreal, insane example is this really um, barbaric assault upon the Iroquois who mostly sided with the British for good reason, which was that the British were going to leave them alone. Unlike the, American settlers, yeah. uh, the British were going to, you know, would like to, because didn't basically didn't want to start a new war with France. So wanted a buffer zone of, you know, native groups that were unharassed by squatters from, from the coast. And so, I mean, in this assault on the Iroquois, they do stuff like the con that the continental army, like under Sullivan, they do stuff like dam an entire lake, to create an artificial surge down the Susquehanna River that they're then going to float all these boats full of supplies down. They've built a road to this lake. They build this dam. Then they, like, build a road from their landing point. And she's like, what? This is, you know, not the image of um, the Minutemen at Lexington and Concord. So the war was very capital-intensive, very logistic-intensive, and so Hamilton absorbs all these lessons. 
And amidst it, there's constant bickering between the states. They're you know, sending supplies, saying it's only for this group, not that group. You know? um, and he sees just how tenuous the whole thing is. So that's his kind of object, part of his, his object, his experiential education in the war, if you will. Washington ordered the total destruction and devastation of, of the Iroquois settlements and capture of as many prisoners of every age and sex as possible adding that it will be essential to ruin their crops now in the ground and prevent their planting more. So uh, genocidal yeah. words from our uh, brave founding father. The book is, I mean, I imagine a lot of um, kind of millennial leftists might be confused or uncomfortable with the tone of the book right. because it's very amoral. You know, I'm not, the book is not about justifying or celebrating Hamilton or saying, isn't America great? But it is about, recognizing that, you know, lots of states are born out of uh, really horrible agendas. They don't all survive, right? And um, a movement, a political movement that can, can take state power and build a powerful state at a technical level deserves examination. And that is the history of our country. Even as socialists and lefties who, who do not approve of a lot of what this government does and we should also look at like wait a minute how, how did this thing happen it wasn't actually inevitable and you know foreordained yeah one of the things that you point to in the book is the the equivalence that's been made on the left with like local is beautiful small is beautiful and really interrogate the legacy of jefferson compared to, to Hamilton. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it certainly countered my like high school U.S. history education. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I, was, I was born and raised in Virginia. So try that on for size for uh, <laughs> <laughs> valorization of Jeffersonian yeah. uh, yeoman. Whatever, so you've got, yeah. Yeah. Jefferson. Um, yeah. I mean, there's a lot to recommend Jefferson, but there's also uh, a lot of, um, a lot of bullshit in Jefferson's tradition and his style. I mean, he's a really quintessentially American kind of huckster at one level. But um, yeah, I mean, Jefferson, to give him his credit, right, him and his followers, they push the Bill of Rights, right? I mean, Hamilton is not always the good guy. Hamilton is an authoritarian. And he uh, was like, wait, we don't need like, uh, hey, we don't need the Bill of Rights. We don't need the first 10 amendments of the Constitution. We've got that embedded in here somehow. And, you know, the it was the Jeffersonians, the Democratic Republicans and these kind of, you know, pre-party parties, they had Federalists and Anti-Federalists or, or Democratic Republicans who really pushed for the Bill of Rights. And so let's give them their due. But yeah, what I found in doing this research is that there's a classic take on the Constitution, the Revolution, at, which is that, right, so the the 13 colonies come together under the Articles of Confederation, which is a loose defense compact. Congress, which is the main national institution, there's also the Continental Army, that's it for national institutions. Congress doesn't even have the power to tax. It has to request money from states. And uh, this is the structure that gets the colonies through the war. They become states. And for the, the... the period, the decade after the war, the 1780s, the critical period, takes place primarily under the Articles of Confederation. And it becomes clear that this is not sufficient. This is not going to hold the, the country together. And uh, the classic 
or common reading of this is that the local power, uh, the local democratic structures that gave rise to the revolution are overthrown by the constitution that's ratified in 1789, passed at the convention of 1787. And that is true to some extent, that the, the kind of like the autonomy and power of local government is significantly diminished by the constitution. However, it is not true that that translates into a defeat for egalitarian policies and politics uh, and democracy even, right? That all sorts of really retrograde policies have flown, come out of the, the local level in this country, right? I mean, local, I, mean, I, I think this sometimes when, when I hear the more superficial discussions around BLM, people are like, local Local justice is like, well, you know, we have a tradition of that in the U.S. and it's called lynching and vigilantism, right? Those are like community, not, you know, like or community control, community justice, like, okay, but not, you know, not all communities are nice. You know what I mean? And I, I feel particularly this way because I was raised in small towns in New England. So I'm like acutely aware, like communities aren't always nice places to be, you know, they have surveillance, they've got like screwed up norms and that they try to impose on people. And, and sometimes, like, the, the national, the more anonymous national, national political entities are uh, driving liberation. The federal government, right, desegregates, et cetera, et cetera. So and, and even yeah, now. Jefferson, is, Jefferson is the champion of this sort of, like, local democracy, et cetera, et cetera. So I try and problematize that in a way that I'm sure will piss off a certain type of extremely online person, if they even read books. I don't know if they do. They don't. Don't worry. You're fine. You're good. Uh-huh. But they... But they tweet about them anyway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's well, okay. They, no such thing as bad publicity, folks. Go ahead. They, they, they read titles. So, so they'll hate order this uh, book, you guys. Hate order. Yeah. It's fine. So, so they'll know that you wrote something where you said that Hamilton was awesome and uh, everything about him was good. Hamilton, right? He's the beatbox uh, on the right. I, you know, I have not seen. I have not seen the. Um, you know, I've not seen the. The musical, yeah. Anyway, has anybody yeah. on this podcast seen the musical by chance? I, I think not. it's on Netflix now. Yeah, Nobody? Or right. Disney Plus? I think I haven't seen it. Disney Plus. We're pure. We're pure. We're good. We're, we're among the good ones. So there are two types of people. Look, hey, some of my best friends like <laughs> My wife likes musicals. What can I say? But it's, yeah, I just don't like musicals. I just. Well, this is a story all about how my life got flipped, turned upside down. I got sure a you didn't see her at Valley Forge, and now I like to talk about. State sovereignty. I don't, I don't look, God, Christian, I'm not a rapper, but you know what I am? Podcast host. So we're going to go and uh, we're going to take this over to the B side. Uh, everybody, if uh, you have enjoyed Christian's discussion about this uh, really important book, uh, we're going to continue talking about the uh, intellectual history, the, 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 the concrete history uh, of this, this man, this moment, uh, these politics, the import of this and all of our time, all the rest of it, guys. You know what you get here. We're going to talk all about that on the B-side. Uh, if you've enjoyed this uh, presentation, you're going to enjoy the B-side. And if you're not a patron, you're going to miss out. That'd be very sad for you. We're talking about the importance of building institutions and, and alternate frameworks for organizing society. And uh, what we do on here uh, on DPS is a little bit less ambitious, perhaps, than uh, organizing for a developmentalist uh, socialist project for the Green New Deal. Uh, but it, you know, it's a little, uh, it's a brick in the wall. Uh, so uh, we encourage if you are a part of, if you want to be a part of that, like to see that come to fruition. If you want to see uh, more guests like Christian Parenti, build the cadres necessary to, to 
produce the grounding for such a movement, head over to patreon.com slash dead pundits and become a patron today. There aren't a lot of shows like DPS out there that uh, have the long form interview format to really uh, get that good cadre education. We are in the midst also of a black political thought series that's going to be kicking. Uh, it's already kicked off uh, with Adolf Reed last week, and we're going to be doing many, many more episodes of that stuff to come. Good, good social strategy, black political thought, a little intellectual history along the way. Uh, you guys are going to get it all here on DPS, patreon.com slash dead pundits. We're going to take it over to the B side. Uh, Christian, we can go ahead and sign off for the masses. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, See folks on the B-side, hopefully. Sounds good. Bye.